Hello, and welcome to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. In Her Room is supported by listeners like you. Contribute to keeping the show ad-free at patreon.com slash inherroom, or visit our website to make a one-time donation. Your support keeps women's voices on the air. This week's guest on In Her Room is Lindsay Mead. Finding the balance between public and private life is sometimes a challenge, but Lindsay Mead shows us with grace and confidence that it can be done. Her personal essays give us a glimpse of life as a writer, avid reader, and working mother. Sharing vignettes of her life, raising adolescents, living near incredible sunsets, and the joys of poetry, Lindsay's honest distillations of life's happiness and heartaches speak volumes. Lindsay, it is so great to have you on the show today. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you today. I am a longtime reader of your blog and your site, and I just am so honored that you said yes and that you can make the time to sit down with me today. Well, I'm honored that you asked, so thank you. I am really excited to talk about so many things, um, but I really want to start off by asking you, what is writing to you? Ah, that's a harder answer than I might have imagined. Um, weirdly, nobody's asked me that before. Um, well, to be fair, I still struggle thinking of myself as somebody who writes. So I think it's a mountain I'm still climbing and probably will be forever. Um, but writing is just, I mean, I think always of that Joan Didion quote, which I'm sure everybody thinks, which is about the you know, how we write to find out what we think, or I write to find out entirely what I think. I'm paraphrasing poorly, but the gist is that I often don't know what I'm, when I sit down, I often don't know what, it sounds bad to say this, <laughs> I often don't know what my point is. I mean, I, a lot of times I unearth things through the process of writing. So I guess maybe that's what I'm trying to say. It's much more of a process for me than the end game. And it's um, just part of my life. I can't imagine not having or doing it's much more um sort of an under the radar part of who I am than it is obviously externally I'm not published or anything so I I I think it's just a it's integral to how I am in the world I think it sounds like a wordy answer but I think that's the best one yeah that makes sense to me (laughs) (laughs) I think um you mentioned that John Didion quote and I think of it often because like so many things that Didion writes, they're like just stupidly on point, yeah. right? Like you think we're just like, oh man, yeah. Joan Didion did it again, right? You know, I remember going through a phase where I read a collection after collection of Didion essays, and I was just like, why do I even bother writing? Because Didion says it all. But I think it's important too because sometimes I have to remind myself that when I write. I write to figure out what I'm thinking. I don't write to think about or figure out what Joan Didion is thinking or, you know, um, you have talked about Annie Dillard before, who is another one of my very favorite authors. And I don't write to think, to figure out what Annie Dillard is thinking. Um, That's why Annie Dillard writes. And so I think there's this way that we internalize this quote as like, yes, this is really true for me. And at the same time, forget like 
oh wait I'm actually writing to figure out what I think yeah and I I have to bring that in right so yeah and that's a lot of what comes through in your in your writing online is is that that way of um going one step beyond the processing one step beyond the sort of messy figuring it out to looking at that greater wisdom and what it means and what are the lessons and I think that's one of the hallmarks of really well-written personal essay which I experienced from you so I'm curious how you came to writing personal essay or creative nonfiction as opposed to uh, some other form of writing that you could put online yeah it's a good question and I it was like many things in my life less deliberate than um, accidental and the pattern always reveals itself after. But, you know, I've always, when I reflect on the, I'm 40 and, you know, I have an MBA and I work full time in finance. So I have this whole other side of my life that has nothing to do with writing. And I, um, I, I often note that I really, I grew up as, I mean, I was one of those children who was writing in a diary and wanted to write and wrote poetry. And, you know, I was an English major in college and my favorite intellectual experience in my entire life was writing my thesis, which was about poetry. Um, and then I graduated and took a job in management consulting and then, you know, proceeded to spend 10 years without really writing. I always read. So I've always been a reader. And I think those two things are, you know, flip sides of the same coin. But um, I didn't really come back to writing until I'd had my children. Um, and I think that was not an accident. So that's a again, long-winded answer, but I, I don't know that um, I chose personal essay. I don't know that I chose writing. I feel like it chose me. And that's one of my favorite pieces that I've written is about the, it's a famous quote. I think Roald Dahl actually said, I never had to choose the subject. My, my subject found me. And that's how I feel about both what I write about and the form I use. So, you know, I did start writing as a blogger, really, as an adult. Um, which is, you know, short, in my view, short personal essays. Um, and so while I have experimented with longer form work, um, not very successfully, and I've also dabbled in both poetry and fiction writing, none of them has felt as familiar to me. So I guess it just feels like home, personal essay. I guess it's, it's less that I sat up one day and said, okay, this is what I'm going to write, and more that that just felt the most familiar. And you recently also talked about um, you wrote a blog post about writing a book and how you have let sort of the overarching idea of I'm going to write a book um, really let that go and and sort of come to acknowledge that the personal essay, the the shorter blogging is really what's comfortable for you. And one of the things that you uh, wrote, you reference a piece from Nina Badzen who wrote about what's next for me. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that you say in that, which I love and I think comes back to this idea of writing to figure out what we think is um, you make an aside in your blog post and said, if you know what this blog is about and can summarize it in a sentence, please tell me. <laughs> And I really yeah. loved that. Um, it made me laugh so hard when I read it because I was like, oh my goodness, I should put that like on every blog post that I write. Um, but the really the, the honesty in that 
um, I think is what comes through for me because you do write about a lot of different things, but they all have a central theme yeah. in some ways. Um, but I think really the nature of life and time and memory. Um, and I know that's what keeps me coming back to your work is your examination of moments um, is just so, I'm sure it doesn't feel this way, but it comes across as being so distilled. Oh, thank you. And and that is um, really amazing for me. And I'm curious, what brings you to that, that noticing and that way of distilling a moment um, into your writing? And and if if you have a sense of how you figured that out? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I'll go right to the punchline, which is I'm not sure I do know how I figured it out, but I do know that um, it's a little bit chicken and egg because I started my blog in 2006 with the goal of capturing the stuff I knew I was going to forget. My daughter was three and my son was one and they're now 12 and 10. Um, and I've always taken a lot of pictures and I've always written things down and even when she was turning one, I wrote a letter to her on her birthday, you know, like on hard, on paper. Um, <laughs> I scratched it on the wall of the cave. Um, but uh, I, so anyway, I came to the writing about my life and about the moments of my life very clearly because I didn't want to forget things. Um, but in so doing, it's like that's turned inside out because the practice of writing now has made me more aware. So um, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's kind of, turned around. And so now part of the reason I can't imagine not blogging is that the, just the practice of writing, you know, several days a week um, has made me so much more cognizant of my own life. And um, some of it I write, a lot of it I don't write. Obviously, I don't record every single thing I feel. Um, but I, I do think that um, I that distillation is is hard one. Um, I'm really grateful to hear you say you feel it because I certainly don't always. Um, but I, I guess I, I don't, I don't know a better answer than to say just the practice of showing up day after day is what allowed me to get to a place where I feel like I'm able to, uh, crystallize what I'm seeing and what I'm experiencing in, in a way that I want to keep track of. Mm. One of my favorite essays by you, and one that I often return to and reference others to, is a piece that you uh, wrote that was published on the Huffington Post. And it was called 10 Things, I think they called it 10 Things 10-Year-Olds Should Know. But really, it's a list of 10 things that you wanted your daughter to know before she turned 10. And recently, you made a, a companion list for your son. But I'm curious what inspired you to actually write this list and to think about these things? Because to me, this list is the thing that I think everybody needs to hear, yeah. no matter what their age is. Um, right, right. And, and so there is this way that um, you wrote this for your daughter, but really I think for so many more. And I'd love to know more about that piece and what it was like to write that for you. Yeah, that's probably the, I mean, that's been the best known piece I've written. And that coming off of that was, um, you know, I, I, that's when I started getting some interest about a book and stuff. And I started engaging in the discussion about writing about my daughter and adolescence and um, which I'll come back to. But 
so I, oh, you said something that I think is really true. And I, I've written this before. I, I, when I write about my daughter and when I parent my daughter in particular, in part because she's a girl and in part because she's my first child, it's very clear to me that I'm writing to myself too. And I have a terrific mother who I adore and she lives down the street and I had a wonderful childhood and there's many things that I would have done differently, but many, many things that I think were fantastic. And so a lot of times when I describe it that way, it sounds like I'm trying to repair some wound from my own childhood, which is not my, certainly my conscious experience. Um, but I am aware that, you know, I think that many of the things I wrote to Grace in that piece are things that I still want to learn and I still want to know. And so, um, anyway, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's very clear to me that I'm speaking not just to a, an adolescent girl, but also adult women. And that piece was so gratifying for me because a lot of people responded to it. And that's what I heard over and over again was, you know, I still need to, I still need to hear these things as a 75 year old woman or a 50 year old man. Um, and so that was really lovely to hear that one. I actually thought about a lot. Um, a lot of times my work candidly on my blog is fairly, um, I mean, I think about what I write, obviously, but oftentimes I write my pieces fairly quickly and I don't do a ton of editing. You can often find typos if you read me in the morning. <laughs> um, uh, but that one I really thought about a lot. And I, as you know, I'm super aware of time. And um, I feel like the minute I got my sea legs of mothering, suddenly I was aware that it was almost over. And I know it's never over, but the phase where they're little and at home um, is, you know, limited now. And my daughter is going to be a teenager and my son's 10 and there's definitely more years behind us than there are ahead of us. And so that awareness animated has animated my whole life and uh, having children has only heightened it. And so as she approached 10, there was something to me that felt very weighty about the advent of double digits. And so, I, I, you know, the, the 10 things, first of all, was sort of an arbitrary construct and the 10 years old is also somewhat random that I chose it. Um, but it is true that over that summer, which was now almost three years ago, I think the post actually went out around the beginning of June three years ago. So almost three years ago, exactly. Um, uh, I was just really conscious of what I wanted to make sure she heard from me and what I wanted to make sure she learned. Now, I'm super aware that we can only I can I can't control what she learns. I can control what I try to demonstrate and teach. And so that's all I can do. But, you know, I think that's kind of the genesis of those of those things was more that, you know, at the end of her childhood, what is it I want my daughter to really believe to be true about people, about herself, about the world? Um, and I tried to to really sort of distill those down. And you've talked about both wanting and not wanting to write about your kids, particularly about your daughter's adolescence. And I think that that is uh, a conversation that is becoming more and more common and more and more important as we look at raising our kids when we have things like Instagram and Facebook, where we share moments of our lives that are also moments of theirs. And I'd love to hear you talk more about that conversation for yourself. Mm -hmm. Well, with specific reference to the book and the idea of writing about her, I, I realized that, um, and I wrote this in that blog post, I'm sorry if I'm uh, redundant, this is redundant, but, you know, I realized that um, I just wasn't going to be comfortable sharing certain things about my daughter's 
you know, puberty <laughs> and teenage years. And I care a lot more about her than I do and my relationship with her than I do about writing a book. So that was a very simple decision. And it's not that I didn't go down the road. I did. It would be a lie to say I hadn't, you know, pursued it. I did publishers passed. Um, you know, so it, I'm not trying to say that it was just me deciding to walk away, but the whole process was really educational because it helped me realize that um, I'm very comfortable sharing certain things, but there's also a very clear line. Like I never write about my husband and people often comment on that. And I just say, look, there's something I have to keep <laughs> for myself. I mean, you know, it's not. So as they get older, I feel much more aware that their stories are their own. Their friends are now on social media. They're on social media. Um, and so, you know, I think. I don't have an answer. I just know that I think about it a lot and I'm often surprised by how little other people that I know seem to wonder about it. So I guess I, I hope that being engaged in the, the thinking about where's the line between what's mine and what's theirs and what do I want to have be permanent. Um, I don't have answers to those questions, but I know that I really ponder the questions a lot. And at this point I, I asked them, you know, I mean, I say to them, are you comfortable with my sharing this or that? Certainly any Instagram pictures they have input on um, and veto power over. Uh, I got in trouble last year when I shared a picture of somebody's animal, stuffed animals. And they were like, that's not public, you know, and I just didn't think about it because I thought I, I tend to focus on pictures of them. Um, and I realized, well, that's actually also theirs. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I don't have a good answer. I just I think it's a very fraud. I'd rather be more careful than I. Now, I know people who don't share pictures of their kids at all. I obviously do. So I'm not as careful as some. Um, I I wonder about that. I hope I didn't make the wrong call on that one. When I think it's also a great conversation about personal autonomy, mm -hmm. which seems strange, but I think we just don't talk enough about that. And for some of us, um, I think of myself and how my own childhood lacked a sense of autonomy. Uh, my decisions were not my own. The things that happened were not decided by me. And when I engage now with others who have small children or children growing, and I think about, I think about when I have gone to weddings, right? And there's like the, the slideshow of all the pictures and there's always the awkward baby photos yeah. And, and I think about how, you know, that's what is going up on Facebook yeah. or Instagram for some people. And I wonder what that means and how we are showing our children a chance to develop a sense of, of personal autonomy and a sense of uh, boundaries. Yeah. And so I love that you have this conversation and that you have those lines and you do talk about them because I think it's so important and it's something that isn't necessarily being spoken. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of it is, um, I think part of the reason people don't talk about it is because they're afraid of, or at least for me, I'm afraid if I share my view, I will, it will feel to somebody who has a different view that I'm judging them. And I'm honestly, truly not. I mean, I think everybody's got to make this decision for themselves and for their own families, but I think people are very afraid of offending. And so they don't, uh, talk about it. I'm sure some people just don't think about it too. But I think some people, I think more people are aware of the um, tension and just don't talk about it. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, yeah. And I think that alienation and that fear of seeming like judging is a big part of it. I I would definitely agree. I think it's that it's 
it's part of the challenge of online conversation. Yeah. And textual conversation is that um, we lose the nuance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But more importantly, I think we lose the safety and the ability to feel vulnerable through a screen, which sometimes is the ingredient that's missing when we want to have these hard conversations. Whereas when we're maybe talking one-on-one with someone or talking by Skype or in person, we're able to judge that a little bit better. Yeah. Yeah. Where, you know, words on a screen, words on a blog page can be much more difficult to understand and to judge. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I'd love to know the best advice you've ever received. Mm-hmm. Well, the best writing advice I've ever received is for sure. Sorry, is for sure the just button chair philosophy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have, and uh, you know that whole the muse shows up uh, looking like or whatever the you know inspiration shows up looking like work dress in overalls. I mean, I do think there's a lot of truth to that. And so when it comes to writing, I do think that um, that's about the best advice I've ever received. And also just read a lot. Um, I'm amazed by how many people I know who are aspiring writers who don't really read. Um, And that's just very foreign to me. Um, Life advice, I really, I I don't know. I I don't get it. It's weird. People don't give me a lot of advice. I get a lot of advice on parent. I mean, I don't. So one thing I categorically basically don't do is read parenting books. Obviously, my kids are older now, but I just think that's very I have not met many that I liked and so I don't read them. So I don't have a lot of parenting advice, I guess. Um, I don't know. I, I recently, once in a while I ask Grace and Whit, what would you say are the things that I've taught you? Um, and they always say something silly like, Oh, how to use a debt potty and you know, to write thank you notes, which is not silly. Um, I think they'd probably say pay attention. Maybe that'd be the, the best life advice I ever got. Mm. Um, but that's a hard question. And I, I'm struck, actually. I'm nobody, I haven't really thought until right now that people don't offer me advice very often. I don't, I don't know that that's me. I think maybe people just don't offer advice, period. Yeah. <laughs> but I, when it comes to writing, I think just sit down and do the work. And that's hard. Hard. I don't like the dirty there. Nobody does. It is hard. Yeah. Yeah. That's... And, you know, I, I guess I'm just babbling now, but I think that, um, you know, I write a lot about time and not just memory and how fast time goes, but also that the one thing we can all control actually in our lives is how we spend, not we can't actually purely control it, but one of the few things we really can do is make decisions of how we spend our free time. And I think that, um, you know, if you want to be a writer, you want to write a book, you got to not do something else because <laughs> it is a zero sum game, you know, mm-hmm. time. That's the only one I think, but that one is. Yeah. I think that's really important. You know, it seems like we have, it, it seems like we both have a million hours and no time at all. But that trade off is an important thing to remember. Like when you sit down and you say, I'm going to work on a big project, you really do have to consider what am I going to give up? Is it going to be a TV show? Is it going to be, you know, going out to coffee? Is it going to be all of these things? Because it is work. Yeah. And, and just like anything, we have to give ourselves the space to commit to it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love it if you might share some of your writing with us. Well, so I wrote, so I did write 10 things I want my daughter to know. And then I wrote as part of a a collection of essays about childhood. I don't know if you saw it. We wrote 10 writers, uh, my friend Allison Slater, Tate and I conceived. She was her idea. And together we managed it. 
And we had somebody do one, somebody do two, somebody do three, somebody do four. Then we went on and did this as adolescents. Um, but I wrote one about my daughter about the age of 10, which I still think is um, uh, seminal somehow important. And my, my son is now 10. So I, I, I can read some of that. Is that all right? I mean, I do think it's fairly. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, I spent my teenage summers at a wonderful rambling house on the Massachusetts shore with several families. There was always a tangle of children and we got in a habit of going for swims after dinner. One summer there was phosphorescence. I've never forgotten those unexpected bright swirls of light, otherworldly, as blinding as they were fleeting. Ten is like that. Ten is phosphorescence. Ten blazes brightly and vanishes so quickly you wonder if your eyes are playing tricks on you, playing tricks on you. Ten is a changeling. In her mahogany eyes, I see the baby she was and the young woman she's fast becoming. In one moment, she's still a little girl, clutching her teddy bears before bedtime, and in another, she's a near teenager, dancing and singing along to Nicki Minaj. She oscillates between wanting to bolt for the horizon of young adulthood that she can see and wanting to shrink from it, nestling instead in, inside early childhood with me. Motherhood has offered me more surprises than I can count. But the biggest one is how limbed with loss it is, how striated with sorrow. I'm blindsided over and over again by the breathless rush of time. For every single thing that will never come again, though, there is a dazzling new surprise, a skill, a new wonder, a new delight. All of parenting is a constant farewell, an endless alleluia wrapped together, but 10 is like an especially momentous one. 10 is evanescent, liminal, unquestionably the end of something and just surely the beginning of something else is my 10-year-old noted in tears the night before her birthday. She will never be single digits again, ever. Um, the only thing 10 wants more than her ears pierce is the dog. She so laughs uproariously as she flies down a sledding hill, but she also shrugs nonchalantly at the top of the black diamond slope before turning down it and executing perfect turns, her duct tape covered helmet a blur of color against the snow. 10 wears tall Ugg boots I can fit into and impossibly long yoga pants that I mistake for my own when I'm folding laundry. She organizes her crayons in rainbow order, and I can see the alphabetized spice rack that lies ahead. Ten swings masterfully across the monkey bars, dribbles a soccer ball all the way up the field and scores, plays good enough tennis that we can play actual games. Ten loves board games and Club Penguin, and the door of her closet is covered with posters to Taylor Swift and Selena Gomez. When will these girls be replacing her affection by boys, I wonder? I hope not too soon. Ten is streaks of brilliance in the dark sea, whose providence is unknown, who vanish as fast as they appear. Tan sat on my lap this week, her toes brushing the floor on either side of my legs. I ran my fingers over a temporary tattoo of a shooting star on her arm, and I thought, that's what ten is. Ten is a shooting star. An explosion of light and kinesis that will never come again. Blink and you'll miss it. Ten leaves heartfelt, tear-jerking notes for me on my pillow that profess her love, devotion, and thanks. And sometimes she walks icily away from me at school drop-off, refusing to turn around, angry at something. Ten is sensitive and easily bruised, confused by the startling meanness that can flare in other adolescent girls, desperate to be liked. Ten is fragile and fierce. Ten is vehement attachment and lurching separation. When ten grows up, she wants to be a veterinarian, mother, and a writer. In the About the Author section of a book she wrote at school, she said the author took five years to write the book because she was also raising her children. Ten doesn't miss a single thing, and what I do matters a hundred times more than what I say. Ten kneels in front of the ferry stream at a nearby park, breath drawn, and I swear that enchantment still brushes past her, like her heroine Hermione running by under the invisibility cloak. Ten caught my eye last Christmas when she said something about Santa, conveying in a single look that she knew he wasn't real, but that she didn't want to ruin it for her younger brother. 
10 is the child who made me a mother, my pioneer, my trailblazer, walking hand in hand with me through all the firsts of her childhood and my motherhood. Sorry. <laughs> 10 is my amazing grace. And Sexton said, I look for uncomplicated hymns, but love has none. 10 is, the un 10 is a complicated hymn, a falling star, a blink and you'll miss it moment in time, an otherworldly flash of green gorgeousness in the dark ocean. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> yeah, I said once, I think every child, every parent who has a child named Grace probably uses that hymn all the time, but we do think of it that way. Thank you. Thank you for reading that. You are not just a writer, but you are an avid reader. And you talk a lot on your blog about the books that you're reading. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious what you're devouring these days. I just wrote a blog post actually uh, for next week about like the books that I've loved best halfway through the year. And that's another Nina Badson thing. Um, she started that and I love it. You know, I'm in a huge, I've been reading a lot of great memoirs lately and I don't know, I haven't found as many novels that have speaking to me. I'm not sure why. Um, so I've been reading um, some memoirs I love recently were H is for Hawk, Ongoingness, um, The Folded Clock, Hold Still. Um, and I also, I often and still read poetry uh, on a regular basis. So I've often joked that I'm the only person I know who can stay up too late reading Wendell Berry, mm. but I sometimes can't put him down. I get that. You know, for me, it's Merwin. Oh, he's yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I understand completely staying up too late to read poetry. It's um, I once came across um, and was gifted a collection of back issues of Poetry Magazine oh, wow. that uh, a loved one found at a garage sale. Wow. They sit on my shelf and and mostly I, I think to myself, why am I still moving these around? Yeah. But I love to pull them down and um, just open it to a page because poetry is so unlike, I think, any other form of writing. And, and even with all of the hybrid and cross-genre work that's going on these days, I think there's something so special about reading a poem. I agree with that. And it's just so, I mean, you feel when people hear that I read poetry, so they, it's almost like you say I made my own cheese or something. I feel or like I'm a Wiccan, you know, they're like, it's kind of wild and weird. But I just still think it's really, I mean, I think if you had, if you forced me to pick a form that feels like home to me, not for writing, but for reading, it would certainly be poetry. Mm-hmm. And now you're making me want to go read Merwin. Yes, there is there is something phenomenal, I think, about returning to the poets. I love discovering new poets. Um, I'm yeah. I'm really enjoying uh, Jessica Piazza's new book. Um, she won a poetry prize from A Room of Her Own Foundation. Oh, wow. Okay. Her new book is called Interrobang. And um, it's this really just um gorgeously well done so it's divided into phobias and philias oh wow and okay. so each poem deals with a certain one of those they're mostly sonnets but there are there's some play in the in, in the form but it's just um yeah so she won the to the lighthouse wow prize. that's cool yeah um it's just really yeah it's a phenomenal phenomenal book. I'm really, really enjoying it. It's um, 
it's not a light book of poetry by any means. Um, but it's just, it's incredibly well done. I'm going to check it out. I see you online um, interacting with a lot of other writers, um, especially a lot of other women writers, uh, talking about writing, reading their books, um, creating things with other writers. And I'd love to know your thoughts on the importance of a writing community, especially a writing community online. Yeah, that's really a great question. Um, I So first of all, I'm honored that you would say other writers because that implies I am one, which I'm still struggling to do, own. So thank you. Um, I think I honestly, I, I staggered into, or I, not staggered, I tiptoed into the blog world sort of without really realizing what I was doing. I started tweeting many years ago and I have to say, I really love it. Like I, I a lot of people are extremely critical of all the negative ways in which social media is eroding. And I do think there are some downsides like you and I were talking about earlier about, um, you know, replacing a nuance that you miss when you're online. But at the same time, I found a hugely supportive and really lovely community of mostly women online in both the blogs I read and have found and Twitter in particular and Instagram. Um, and I think it's really important. I mean, I, I was actually, I had a great writing group here in Boston. I used to be a part of um, Danny Shapiro's private writing workshop. Also, both of those were great experiences, but I just found it very hard um, to make the time. I mean, I you know, it was both were substantial commitments uh, in in a life that feels abundant already. I'm trying not to say busy, so I say other positive words. Um, uh, and I think that you know, the the community online can be is much more um, available when you need it, when you want it. You know, and it's it flexes around a, a a life that's full already in a way that I, for me has been really positive. Um, I, I think there are certainly mean people out there and people who don't want to collaborate and people who don't want to read and people who aren't kind, but, you know, by a massive majority, I have found people online to be um, super supportive, very loving, very helpful. You know, I've met people online who then became real friends in real life, as well as teachers. That's how I met Danny. That's how I met Katrina Kennison, people who become a really important part of my, my writing life and my daily real life. Um, so I think it's really important. And I think, um, I don't know how, how others feel because I actually haven't talked about it that much, but I'm struck by how inclusive and how welcoming the community is on the whole. And so I think that, um, you know, I hope that's other people's experience too. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that I am always so grateful for about the internet, which is like the, you know, it's sort of like the almost cliche thing that people praise the internet for is bringing people who would otherwise never meet one another yeah. together. Yeah. Um, and what I love about the various online writing communities, um, I often think and reflect specifically to my own community of writers through whom I have connected with on Instagram, which is both visual and written in sort of this simultaneous package of goodness that we don't always get in like a physical book that doesn't have pictures. Um, but I think there is this way that we really do have the chance to meet such radically diverse people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who can therefore change our entire existence. Yeah. Just through one interaction. Um, and I think that for me has been the best part of having an online writing community has just been the simple joy of 
being transformed by someone that I might not have ever otherwise met. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, I, I agree with that. And just the ability to connect with somebody who your life, your daily life would never, you would never cross paths with. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm curious if you have any creative rituals or habits, particularly about writing, but about all creativity. No, is the short answer. <laughs> um, I really, I'm a very much around the edges writer. So I write um, when I get free time in my workday, I write in the evenings, I write in the early morning. So I don't have, you know, kind of like a 10 a.m. every day I sit down on my desk. Um, I have, I'm staring at it right now. A, I have two computers. So I have a work computer and a personal computer. And I, that matters to me, sort of just psychologically. Um, and so my writing is on my personal computer. I have them both open during the day. Um, I sit in front of a wall of pictures of sort of my family and my closest friends. Um, and that only has one quote on it, which people always find very surprising. It has one poem, which is a Wendell Berry poem called The Work. Mm. And so I look at that all day long. Um, I I would say it's sort of a tradition that I take pictures of the sunset, um, but I sometimes miss it. Uh, yeah, no, I really wish I had a better, I, I would, I, I'm clearly not, I mean, I think I'm, people often say to me, oh, you're so disciplined. And it's funny because I don't think of myself that way at all. Like I, but I, I wish I had a more, um, I mean, probably because I'm not working on a larger work. I'm able to not, you know, have a certain time that I write every day, but I don't really have a lot of rituals now. Mm. I always have a quiet. I mean, that's why it's not a ritual so much as a preference, but I, a lot of people can write in a coffee shop or with music on and My house is quiet all the time. I work at home, which is great. Uh, my kids are at school all day long. Um, so I'm alone a lot and it's always quiet. And that is important for me. I'm ritualistic by reading. I mean, I read every day. <laughs> That's really, that's easy to do. I do it before bed. Hmm. Do you find that uh, reading before bed keeps you awake or helps you fall asleep or neither? That's a good question. I'm not a good sleeper, period. So I don't know. Um, I did in the, I mean, I don't know that it's reading's fault. <laughs> um, I have in the last several years, I mean, I shut down all devices like at least an hour before I go to bed. So, and I'm, I read old fashioned books. Um, so I, I think that helps. I mean, I really do. Um, sometimes I keep going, obviously if the Barry poetry has really got me going or if a novel I can't put down, but generally speaking, I think it helps me. It just gets me sort of into, I think there's such a loss that we don't read long form anymore. And I, mm-hmm. my husband tells me it's the same and he reads on the iPad, but it's just not, you can always click over to your email, you know what I mean? So I, for me, there's a very important, like, I'm going to shut down the work computer and then I'm going to shut down the home computer and I put on my pajamas and I'm going to, you know, it's like, it feels very, I guess that is sort of ritualistic in a way. So I think it helps me sleep. I, I love reading books on my iPad just because I love carrying a library around with me. Um, but I still buy paper books as well. And I, and I regularly will have a stack of paper books um, next to my bed because to me, that's really important. You know, it's I've always had books on my bedstand. I can't imagine not having books on my bedstand. And having an iPad there just isn't the same thing. So I definitely understand that. Yeah. And I mean, I'd use a lot of the library. So I'd take a lot of books out of the library. Um, but then now and then I, I really want to own them, write in them and share them. And mm-hmm. I'd love to give you a chance. I know that you struggle to call yourself a writer, but I'm going to encourage you to own that for a moment. I'd love to give you an opportunity to share some of your wisdom about your experience writing 
and being a writer uh, with the folks who might be listening to this episode? So, I mean, I do think, as much as I struggle to own it, I think a writer is somebody who writes. So I, I care much less about where somebody's... I actually think there's a lot of great writing online. So I think that um, if people feel compelled to put pen to paper or fingers to keyboard, they should do it, period, full stop. Um, I think that there's value in recording what you see, what you think, what you observe. Um, and even if the only person who ever reads that is you, I think there's value in that. So um, I guess that's what I would say. I, I, it is not an understatement to say that regular writing has changed absolutely entirely how I live in the world. Um, and so I would never choose to live life without regular writing practice. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people if they've committed to it. Um, but I, I think no matter what, it's worth it. It's, it's, it's meaningful. Write something down. I mean, my daughter writes in a journal. I have no idea what she writes. I don't look at it. I told her I wouldn't. And I think, she, you know, even at 12, I can see that it's valuable, uh, for her. So I think that, um, I encourage more people to, to sit down. I do. And I think that, uh, if, if you want somebody to read it, then people will find your work. You know, I think that, uh, people often say, Oh, how do I get readers? And I'm now tangent tangenting and I'm sorry, but people often ask about, Oh, how did you get readers and stuff? And I always remind them, you know, I've been blogging for, it will be nine years in September. Like it's a lot, I'm hardly an overnight success. So I think you just keep at it, keep writing. And, uh, there's, it's worth it. I'm curious, your site is called a design so vast. And I'd love to hear about how you got that title. It's another one of those questions that uh, answers that um, I chose it because I love the quote from that it came from that, that I'll share. But now it's one of those, it feels like I just kind of randomly chose it. And now it seems so, I can't imagine ever having a different name. So um, like many things, the meaning reveals itself. But um, the, the title comes from a quote by Louise Erdrich, which is arguably my favorite quote, which is, there's no such thing as a complete lack of order, only a design so vast that it appears unrepetitive up close. Mm. Um, and I love it because of I find that image very reassuring. And I like the notion now, I think of it as I write about the pieces of the design, which may not hang together in the either short term or up close, but, um, you know, over the arc of time, uh, you see the design. And I hope that's what I'm doing. Um, it's, that's my hope. <laughs> Absolutely. I think so. Also, I love that quote. I, I'm a huge Louise Erdrich fan. Yeah, you know, I have, I wrote about this a while ago. I used to be, I know that now we know the story ended badly, but um, she and Michael Doris used to write the most absolutely wonderful uh, dedications to each other. Mm -hmm. If you go back mm -hmm. to the early novels, they're just, I mean, you may have done that. They're just so, I mean, they were, it's too bad what happened, but it, it was clearly a very, you know, they were really a team. Yes. Well, Lindsay, it's been so great to have you on the show today. I've loved talking with you. And I'm so glad that you said yes. Thank you very much for the thoughtful questions. If listeners want to learn more about you and your writing, they can find you online at adesignsovast.com. You are listening to In Her Room, women writers on life, craft, and changing the world. I'm your host, Sarah Blackthorne. I'm so glad you're a part of the In Her Room community. Without listeners like you, the show would not be possible. On our website, in 
www.her-room.com. You'll find show notes, learn how to work with me, and have an opportunity to contribute financially to keep In Her Room on the air. Next week on In Her Room, we'll talk with author, activist, and poet in the prisons, Kate Meissner. I'm Sarah Blackthorne. Let's tell our stories together. <laughs>